I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this week's Failed Critic Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Steve Norman, joined, like I came every week, by James Diamond. Hello. Jerry McCauley. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. Where this week we will be reviewing End of Watch, but a few things before that. First of all, James, any movie news? None. None. <laughs> no, there's just not much interesting going on at the moment. It's all about film releases for the awards seasons now, so it is quite interesting. I think I'm seeing one or two properly award, ready to be award laden films every week for the next few weeks now. So it's just it's all building up to that. Um, the only thing I can think of is that uh, the Empire Strikes Back screenwriter has been signed on for episodes eight and nine of the new Star Wars films, which is quite interesting. Which is probably good news because Empire was the best of all six, so. Exactly. So, there we As are. As everyone knows, surely. Yes. Yeah, yes. We're not going to get any disagreement there, yeah. are we? Owen might, but there you go. Yeah. Owen, Owen likes that like Phantom Menace one, doesn't he? Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Owen yeah. loves Jar Jar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, more pod races. Right then, the, the quote quiz where Jerry is still winning five. I think I'm now on four. James is on two, is it? Yeah, probably. And Owen is on. Fucking no, Owen is on one. Uh, so this week's quote is, uh, you know, Roger, you are way behind the times. The guys of the 80s aren't tough, they're sensitive people. Show a little emotion to a woman and shit like that. I think I'm an 80s man. How do you figure? Last night I cried in bed. So how is that? Were you with a woman? I was alone. Why do you think I cried? Sounds like an 80s man to me. I, I have no idea, actually. Well, no. if, it's, if it's quiz for, for for having no idea what the quote was, James, you've just got a point. Can't we do that one? <laughs> no. It's that every week for Owen, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be way out of the lead if we were getting fucked and not knowing the answers. Anyone oh, gonna take really a... thinking this? Go on. Anyone gonna take a wild stab in the dark given the quiz update I gave everyone beforehand? Oh, quiz update. I missed that. <laughs> Well, there you go. So it's going to be a cop film with someone called Roger in it. Um, lethal Weapon. Damn it, that's what I was going to guess. You are, you are right, James. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking 
thinking eighties cop films. It can't be. It's not Die Hard. I don't know what to do with Die Hard. That is. That's as fluky as Celtics win over uh, Barcelona. That yes, the, the, the new, the, the new <laughs> thing. Just, it well, you cry. It's not the new rule because I've been doing it for a while now, trying to. But the quiz will come from a film of the same genre or type of the film we're reviewing for the main review or Triple Bill. Because that was, I see. Yeah. Not just that none of us have picked up on this, Steve. I yeah, did say no, it, I did say yeah. it beforehand, but I think everyone missed it. So, uh, anyway. On to what we have been watching, and Owen, what have you been watching? Um, I, well, I was going to talk about a film I watched called Monsieur Lazar, which is about um, an Algerian teacher who moves to um, French-speaking uh, part of Canada. I was going to say, it, it, I was say it sounds French. Yeah, <laughs> and he... Um, Basically, his family all died in Algeria. He, he's now seeking asylum in Canada, and he's teaching a class of children where their previous teacher hung herself in the classroom. Um, Comedy, then. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'll give that a miss because it's a bit of a doubt for that whole film. Um, so I'm going to talk about one that we've mentioned previously, and I think it was James who said he'd talk to me about this. Uh, Network by Sidney Lumet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, Twelve Angry Men is one of my favourite films. Yeah. Uh, it, it was Sydney Lumet's first um, full feature docu- uh, full feature sort of film that he directed, uh, and it opened until like a couple of days ago. It was the only film of his I'd seen, um, which is quite shameful. Really, he's one of those directors who's known for having a shitload of films. Um, mm. But yeah, Network is only the second of his I've seen. I really liked it. I thought it was really good. Um, I've never been to film school, I've never studied film at college or university or anything like that, I've had any lectures, but it struck me as the kind of film that would be used in one of those kind of classes. It's just got, you know, so many different themes, motives, plots, lots of observations just running through the whole movie. Um, And yeah, I I, I just really thought it was just a brilliant film. It's really intelligent, there's some funny bits in it. it's very sharp as well. Uh, some of the characters' minds in it are just works of genius. I was just sort of some of the speeches that are made. Just uh, yeah, fell love with those. They're just fantastic. Um, but some of the characters that deliver those lines, well, actually all of the characters in this film, they're just completely unlikable. There isn't a single likable character in the whole film. Uh, um, but point of the film isn't to make you like them, I don't think. I think the point is mm. to, uh, you're supposed to find them repulsive, basically. You know, it's a satire of the whole television industry, and it is really biting, but the fact that the characters are just so self-centred, so unsympathetic, you just, it, it just really drives the point home, and I guess the point is um, that you shouldn't believe what you see or you hear, and that someone somewhere has decided what to try and make you Leave all in the name of profit. I think that's kind of a theme that runs through the whole, the whole film, and there's just a, a sort of scene in the film actually, which tries to talk about how the world is a business, the world operates mm. like a business, and it's, you know, it's just fantastic. I love that. I thought it was just so intelligently good. Is it a critique of capitalism then, or, or what? I don't think it's really a critique of capitalism um, on its own. It's more a kind of critique. Criticism of the people that make up the society and business. I think it's it's more critique of um, of modern 
culture. Um, yeah. Pop culture, definitely. Um, I, I, this, it was a film I expected to love, and I was actually really underwhelmed by it when I watched it, and it really disappointed me. Because uh, I know it's one of Aaron Sorkin's favourite films, and I love everything that Aaron Sorkin's ever done. And I can, and when I watch Aaron Sorkin's work, I can see Ed Network in it. Um, and I do love bits of it. I love the fact that at the very start, it's, it's very, um, the lighting is very sharp. Uh, uh, everything's in focus until as the film goes on. Um, it could, the focus gets softer. It gets, it gets more color, yeah. artificial lighter. Yeah, and it, it's there's some interesting things there. The issue I actually had with it, and it goes against one of the things that I try and do, is um, I didn't I didn't find it at all. Believe I know it was meant to be quite shocking, and it, I imagine it was shocking mm. at the time. But I've grown up with Fox News and and <laughs> and watching this, I was like, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and, and and that actually, I feel that's me breaking one of my own rules about not about having to watch films and in the context that they were originally set in and with this film i found it very difficult to do that the other thing is well for me personally i thought peter finch as howard beale massively hammy and overacting i, I didn't didn't get into i didn't believe his character at all um I, one thing i did i loved was the william holden who played yes. max and faye dunaway i loved their whole relationship i loved Faye Dunway and I love William Holden in it and I love their storyline um, <laughs> uh, uh, which was very depressing uh, it, it was very depressing and it, it, yeah. I mean, it's interesting though because they don't try and flip it around so you do feel sorry for William Holden no. they don't do yeah. that they, they, in the end he's a good guy but he's also just a complete and utter arse um, yeah, which exactly. I thought was just fantastic it's very honest uh, yes. in a sense yeah. um, but I, I and then the, the subplot with the kind of the anarchist group and uh, and without going into too much detail, the way it ended, I was just like, well, you've lost me here. I, 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 I was really sadly disappointed. I really wanted to like this film, um, and I and I kind of expected to like it, and maybe that went against it. Maybe it's not quite as bad as I thought it was, and I don't think it is a bad film. I just don't think it's as great as because uh, I watched it because it's on the IMDb top 250. Uh, okay. It's the IMDb top 250. Uh, you know, people that I really respect have raved about it. Oh, that was generally my. Um, but but I know that I'm probably in the minority because everyone else I speak to seems to love it. So maybe it's just me. Well, I mean, I did love it. I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. I went into it with high expectations anyway because you know. Yeah. 12 Angry Men is just such a fantastic film and I thought if it's the same director he's so sort of critically acclaimed for, for his works, particularly for sort of this and um, 12 Angry Men and uh, did, did Dog Day Afternoon, did he do that one as well? Yes, yeah, which is so, a brilliant film Yeah, Yeah. so I mean I, I did go into it with quite high expectations um, but I was impressed by it, I thought it was a very good film I thought it was very tight as well the whole script, until it gets to that end point with the whole kind of uh, the terrorist stuff and then it, it yeah. goes a bit loose and, uh, and funky um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was uh, yeah up to that point just, just everything was so just so crisp and I just loved it I thought it was fantastic okay well this week I have my thoughts quite a lot uh, I watched Dreams of a Life recommended by Jerry very good documentary um, it's good isn't it yeah, yeah. Um, I like that a lot 
kind of once when I remember when Jerry was telling us about it, I was kind of expecting it's obviously about um, finding uh, a woman who's been who was dead in her flat um, for three years, and they sort of found her body after it was left there for about three years. Just found it quite surprising how you know before we watched before I watched it, I thought, well, this woman's obviously going to be sort of dislikable and not popular and not have many people close to her. And it just didn't seem like that at all, and it just seemed really strange how that could happen to somebody yeah. anyone full stop but especially somebody who seemed to have so many people who knew her and, and liked her yeah yeah it gets under your skin doesn't it mm. yeah, i don't know what was more concerning that or her ex-boyfriend was clearly punching so far above his weight it was unreal <laughs> <laughs> um i also watched the amiga man with Charlton Heston following on from last week's discussion on um, um, what's it called? The Will Smith film and the I book. Am I Am Legend, that's the one. Which was, it's better than I Am Legend. It's a more faithful adaptation of the book um, and it works a lot better with, with a proper ending and everything that makes sense. And like I said, Will Smith's performance in I Am Legend is a good performance in a bad film. Um, but the over- have you seen um, Have you seen The Last Man on Earth? No. The Vincent Price. That's really good. I think that is a more of a, a sort of straight adaptation of the story as well. If yeah. you like Amiga Man, which I haven't seen, but it seems like you like the I Am Legend story anyway. Yeah. For what it is, try, try watching that one. It's a really good film. Uh, I also watched a film called Nazis at the Center of the Earth, starring Jake. Busey, uh, Gary Busey's son Jake. Not worth watching at all. Don't waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> Christ it's knows not why. Even bad enough to have Gary Boosie in that. No, Christ knows why I wasted an hour and a half of my life watching that. Um, because it sounds so nutsy. It just sounds like some high quality entertainment. Mm. Uh, one one day I might just spend a week watching all these disaster movies you get on Sci-Fi, and just seeing if there's any kind of credible film in there. Uh, but the, the best film I watched this week was Drive from last year, starring Ryan Gosling. Um, Etc. James wanted to talk to me about it. He knows more about film than I do, so I'll let him pick my brain so he can kind of interview me. No, I, I don't do that. His first question will be, do you want to bomb Ryan Gosling? <laughs> yeah, and um, I, I'm going to talk about bombing Ryan Gosling in my film shortly. Um, but just how class, how fucking stylish is that film? Mm, very. The soundtrack's amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's an incredible soundtrack. Um, and I th- it's one of those films where I think the soundtrack actually helps make yeah. the film. I, you could probably argue that Drive is possibly a little bit all style, no content. I, I'm not sure I completely agree with that, but it is, it's a very stylized film. It's a very basic and simple story. It, it, yeah, I it's, think it, it's, it, it's more, it's played well. It's more style over content, but there's definitely content in it. Yeah. I didn't realise until looking it up, I didn't notice until sort of reading up on the film afterwards that you never find out Ryan Gosling's character's name. Yeah, I, um, but I didn't um, even I didn't even pick up on that throughout the film. I don't know if you're meant uh, to or if it's just sort of just doesn't happen. It's he's yeah. just the driver, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that, that, one, the one thing I thought about afterwards this film is actually he doesn't do that many getaways for a film that's about a getaway driver. No. There's not actually that much driving either. <laughs> no, that's what I mean. It's just a bit. <laughs> but um, that opening five minutes just sells the film to me completely. Um, mm. I don't. And it's the high point of the film, but I, I do really enjoy the rest of them. The, the only other thing I would say is 
um, there's some pretty shocking violence in the films, but there's yeah. a few moments where which really took me and almost out of place in the film. Um, yeah, there's a certain scene in a lift, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it makes me feel a little bit. You just thought it would stop at a point and it didn't. And it didn't, yeah. yeah. Um, but Winding Refn's got kind of, uh, he's he's got history in that sense. He did um, after something about Powerhammer, which is a, I can't remember the name, but oh, I've seen oh, it. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty messed up film. But he did and he's Bronson. <laughs> so, yeah, but, and that's why I was really excited about him doing the remake of Logan's Run with Ryan Gosling, but it appears neither of them are attached to that now, so that's that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, it has a lot of similarities with Pan's Labyrinth as well, in terms of the sort of shocking violence that it has in it. Mm. I think it's, it's very much that kind of Indian style of, you know, very contemplative and atmospheric, and then suddenly, bang, something really to jolt you out of it. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, but that's some really good points. Brian Cranston's very good in it. Um, Albert Brooks, who I mainly know as the voice of Marlin from Finding Nemo, um, he's he's very, very good in it as well as a kind of uh, mafioso type. And um, Christina Hendricks, from, most famously from Mad Men, playing a very kind of... Mm. And there's a, there's a pretty nasty scene her as well. Think of it. Um, I've only seen it once, but I'm desperate to watch it again. Actually, I keep I keep nearly watching it again. But I think it's the type of film that will be studied. Uh, you were talking about earlier uh, network being studied in mm-hmm. film. I think this is the type of film that will be studied as well. It's uh, it's it's wonderfully shot, wonderful editing as well, and it's 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 a it's a master in building up atmosphere in a film. Definitely. Basically everything, all those sort of idle daydreams you had while playing GTA Vice City. This yes, yeah. Ultra cool. There's so much Vice City, yeah. even the font of the title. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Just the whole thing feels really nice. Yeah. 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 I've heard an interesting um, theory around Brian Gosling's character in this film is that um, he has Asperger's syndrome. What's, what do you think of that, Steve? Do you think he's got Asperger's or is he just a bit weird? Um... I'm not sure. I don't... Because he's quite quiet throughout the film. He doesn't say much, does he? Well, there, he there's, does there's a few scenes where he's a bit odd, yeah. Because uh, I've heard some people say that it's Gosling not being able to act, but we've seen him act well in other things. I don't think it's that. I, I, then, there may well be something to that. I think it's the opposite of that, actually. He knows when, you know, you don't need to just speak and, and there's a lot more to act in than, than dialogue. Mm. Yeah, I think he did it on purpose, absolutely. I just think it's maybe his character, because, you know, he doesn't say a lot in the film. He's kind of a bit socially awkward around people. Doesn't really pick up on other people's emotions, you know. They're all sort of traits of someone with Asperger's. It just kind of... Yeah, I thought that was quite an interesting theory. It it goes some way to explaining a few of his actions in the film. Definitely. Winding Refn wasn't originally attached to it, and neither was Ryan Gosling. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's got an odd development, hasn't it? Yeah, it was originally Hugh Jackman, and I can't remember who's the director. And then Gosling replaced Hugh Jackman, and then the director left, and Gosling like picked Winding Refn. Hmm. Um, yeah. And Winding Refn um, has failed his driving test like fifty times or something. <laughs> so um, 
he was like, he doesn't have anything to do with cars at all. Ryan Gosling absolutely loves cars. But uh, he said, oh, I wanted to do it anyway. But he doesn't understand anything about cars. So then maybe that's why there's not much driving in. Quite possibly. Yeah, because um, I think Carrie Mulligan was basically driving him around in Hollywood when they were shooting it. He was having driving with her all the time. Um, yeah, no, it's that, that you're probably right. It probably it's probably better that it did come from someone who hasn't got a weird obsession with cars, mm. to be honest. I think that I, you saw a different side to the film than if it had been made by someone who, for example, made uh, Fast and Furious or something like that. Um, right, James, what have you watched this week? Um, well, this week I've watched a few films. I've watched a couple of Steve Carell films I'll talk about very quickly. Um, and this link's quite nice. The first one I watched was Crazy Stupid Love, which I've been meaning to watch for a little while. Um, it stars Steve Carell, Julianne Moore, Ryan Gosling, and Emma Stone. Basic story is Steve Carell plays a guy called Cal, who's a middle aged Welcome to this week's Failed Critic Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Steve Norman, joined, while I came every week, by James Diamond. Hello. Jerry McCauley. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. Where this week we will be reviewing End of Watch, but a few things before that. First of all, James, any movie news? None. None. (laughs) No, there's just not much interesting going on at the moment. It's all about film releases for the awards seasons now, so it is quite interesting. I think I'm seeing one or two properly award, ready-to-be-award-laden films every week for the next few weeks now, so it's just, it's all building up to that. Um, The only thing I can think of is that uh, The Empire Strikes Back screenwriter has been signed on for episodes eight and nine of the new Star Wars films, which is quite interesting. Which is probably good news because Empire was the best of all six, so... Exactly. So, there we As are. As everyone knows, surely. Yes. Yeah, yes. We're not going to get any disagreement there, yeah. are we? Owen might, but there you go. Yeah. Owen, Owen likes that like... Phantom Menace one, doesn't he? Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Owen yeah. loves Jar Jar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, more pod races. Right then, the, the quote quiz where Jerry is still winning five. I think I'm now on four. James is on two, is it? Yeah, probably. And Owen is on... Fucking no, anyway. <laughs> Owen is on one. Uh, so this week's quote is, uh, you know, Roger, you are way behind the times. The guys of the 80s aren't tough. They're sensitive people. Show a little emotion to a woman and shit like that. I think I'm an 80s man. How do you figure? Last night I cried in bed. So how is that? Were you with a woman? I was alone. Why do you think I cried? Sounds like an 80s man to me. I, I have no idea, actually. Well, no. if, it's, if it's quiz for, for for having no idea what the quote was, James, you've just got a point. Oh, damn it. Can't we do that one? <laughs> no. It's that every week for Owen, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be way out of the lead if we were getting points and not knowing the answers. <laughs> Oh, I really have to think of this. Go on. 
anyone going to take a wild stab in the dark, given the quiz update I gave everyone beforehand? What quiz update? I missed that. <laughs> Ah, there you go. So it's going to be a cop film with someone called Roger in it. Um, mm-hmm. Lethal Weapon. Damn it, that's what I was going to guess. You are, you are right, James. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking 80s cop films. They can't be. It's not Die Hard. I don't know what we do with Die Hard. That is, that's as fluky as Celtics win over it's not the new rule because I've been doing it for a while now, trying to, but the quiz will come from a film of the same genre or type of the film we're reviewing for the main review or Triple Bill. Because that was, oh, I see. Yeah. Not so, just, yeah. None of us have picked up on this, Steve. I, yeah, did, no, say, I did say yeah. it beforehand, but I think everyone missed it. So, uh, Anyway, on to what we have been watching and Owen, what have you been watching? Um, I, well, I was going to talk about a film I watched called Monsieur Lazar, which is about um, an Algerian teacher who moves to um French-speaking uh, part of Canada. I was going to say it sounds French. Yeah, <laughs> and he um, basically his family all died in Algeria. He, he's now seeking asylum in Canada, and he's teaching a class of children where their previous teacher hung herself in the classroom. Um, Comedy then. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I think I'll give that a miss because it's a bit of a doubt for that whole film. Um, so I'm going to talk about one that we've mentioned previously, and I think it was James who said he'd talk to me about this. Uh, Network by Sidney Lumet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, Twelve Angry Men is one of my favourite films yep. of all time. Uh, it, it was Sidney Lumet's first um, full feature docu- uh, full feature sort of film that he directed. Uh, and it opened until, like, a couple of days ago. It was the only film of his I'd seen, um, which is quite shameful, really. He's one of those directors who's known for having a shitload of films. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, Network is only the second of his I've seen. I really loved it. I thought it was really good. Um, I've never been to film school. I've never studied film at college or university or anything like that. I've been, had any lectures. But it struck me as the kind of film that would be used in one of those kind of classes. It's just got, you know, so many different themes, motives, plots, lots of observations just running through the whole movie. Um, and yeah, I, re- I I just really thought it was just a brilliant film. It's really intelligent. There's some funny bits in it. Um, it's very sharp as well. Uh, some of the characters' lines in it are just works of genius. I was just sort of, some of the speeches that are made, just, uh, yeah, fell in love with those. They're just fantastic. Um, but some of the characters that deliver those lines, well, actually all of the characters in this film, they're just completely unlikable. There isn't a single likable character in the whole film. Uh, um, but the point of the film isn't to make you like them, I don't think. I think the point is mm. to, uh, you're supposed to find them repulsive, basically. You know, it's a satire of the whole sort of television industry. And it is really biting, but the fact that the characters are just so self-centered, so unsympathetic, you just, it, it just really drives the point home. And I guess the point is um, that you shouldn't believe what you see or you hear, and that someone somewhere has decided what to try and make you believe, all in the name of profit. I think that's kind of a theme that runs through the whole the whole film, and there's just a, a sort of scene in the film, actually. 
which tries to talk about how the world is a business. The world operates mm. like a business. And it's, you know, it's just fantastic. I love that. I thought it was just so intelligently good. Is it a critique of capitalism, then, Owen, or, or what? I don't think it's really a critique of capitalism um, on its own. It's more a kind of criti- criticism of the people that make up the society and business. I think it's it's more a critique of um, of modern culture, um, yeah. and popular culture, definitely. Um, I, I, this, it was a film I expected to love, and I was actually really underwhelmed by it when I watched it, and it really disappointed me because uh, I know it's one of Aaron Sorkin's favourite films, and I love everything that Aaron Sorkin's ever done. And I can, and when I watch Aaron Sorkin's work, I can see a network in it. Um, and I do love bits of it. I love the fact that at the very start, it's, it's very, um, the lighting is very sharp. Uh, uh, everything's in focus until as the film goes on, um, it could, the focus gets softer. It gets, it gets more color, yeah. artificial lighter. Yeah. And it, it's, there's some interesting things there. The issue I actually had with it, and it goes against one of the things that I try and do is, um, I didn't, I didn't find it at all believe, I know it was meant to be quite shocking. And it, I imagine it was shocking mm. at the time, but I've grown up with Fox News and and, <laughs> and watching this, I was like, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 that actually, I feel that's me breaking one of my own rules about not about having to watch films and in the context that they were originally set in. And with this film, I found it very difficult to do that. The other thing is, well, me personally, I thought Peter Finch as Howard Beale massively hammy and overacting. I, I didn't didn't get into, I didn't believe his character at all. Um, I, one thing I did, I loved was the William Holden who played yes. Max and Faye Dunaway. I loved their whole relationship. I loved Faye Dunaway and I loved William Holden in it. I loved their storyline. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, which was very depressing. Uh, it, it was long. very depressing. And it, it, yeah. I mean, it's interesting though because they don't try and flip it around so you do feel sorry for William Holden's no. character. They don't do yeah, that. No. They, they, in the end, He's a good guy, but he's also just a complete and utter arse, um, yeah, which exactly. I thought was just fantastic. It's very honest, uh, yes. in a sense. Yeah. Um, but I, I, and then the, the subplot with the kind of the anarchist group, and uh, and without going into too much detail, the way it ended, I was just like, well, oh, you've lost me here. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 just, I was really sadly disappointed. I really wanted to like this film. Um, and I and I kind of expected to like it, and maybe that went against it. Maybe it's not quite as bad as I thought it was. And I don't think it's a bad film. I just don't think it's as great as because uh, I watched it because it's on the IMDb Top 250. Uh, okay. It's the IMDb Top 250. Uh, you know, people that I really respect have raved about it. Oh, and that was te- generally my. Um, but, but I know that I'm probably in the minority because everyone else I speak to seems to love it, so maybe it's just me. Well, I mean, I did love it. I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. I went into it with high expectations anyway because, you know, yeah. 12 Angry Men is just such a fantastic film and I thought if it's the same director, he's so sort of critically acclaimed for, for his works, particularly for sort of this and um, 12 Angry Men and uh, Dog Day Afternoon, did he do that one as well? Yes, yeah, which is so, a brilliant film, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, I did go into it with quite high, high expectations, um, but I was impressed by it. I thought it was a very good film. I thought it was very tight as well, the whole script, until it gets to that end point with the whole kind of uh, 
the terrorist stuff, and then it, it goes yeah. a bit loose and, uh, and funky. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was, uh, yeah, up to that point, just, just everything was so, just so crisp, and I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Okay, well, this week I have my thoughts quite a lot. Uh, I watched Dreams of a Life, recommended by Jerry, very good documentary. Um, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot. Kind of, once when, I remember when Jerry was telling us about it, I was kind of expecting, it's obviously about um, finding uh, a woman who's been, who was dead in her flat um, for three years, and they sort of found her body after it was left there for about three years. Just found it quite surprising how you know before we watched before I watched it I thought well this woman's obviously going to be sort of dislikable and not popular and not have many people close to her and it just didn't seem like that at all and it just seemed really strange how that could happen to somebody yeah. anyone full stop but especially somebody who seemed to have so many people who knew her and, and liked her yeah yeah it gets under your skin doesn't it mm. yeah, I don't know what was more concerning that or her ex-boyfriend was clearly punching so far above his weight it was unreal I <laughs> <laughs> um, also watched The Amiga Man with Charlton Heston following on from last week's discussion on um, um, what's it called the Will Smith film and the I, book. Am I Am Legend that's the one which was it's better than I Am Legend. It's a more faithful adaptation of the book, um, and it works a lot better with with a proper ending and everything that makes sense. Um, but like I said, Will Smith's performance in I Am Legend is a good performance in a bad film. Um, but the over- have you seen um, Have you seen The Last Man on Earth? No. The Vincent Price That's really good. I think that is a more of a, a sort of straight adaptation of the story as well. I, if yeah. you like Amiga Man, which I haven't seen, but it seems like you like the Iron Legend story anyway, yeah. for what it is, Tr- try watching that one. It's a really good film. Uh, I also watched a film called Nazis at the Centre of the Earth, starring Jake Busey, uh, Gary Busey's son Jake. Not worth watching at all, don't waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> Christ it's knows not why. not even bad enough to have Gary Busey in that. No. Christ knows why I wasted an hour and a half of my life watching that. Oh. Because it sounds so good, it just sounds like some high quality entertainment. Mm. Uh, one one day I might just spend a week watching all these disaster movies and get on sci-fi and just seeing if there's any kind of credible film in there. Uh, but the, the best film I watched this week was Drive from last year, starring Ryan Gosling, um, etc. James wanted to talk to me about it. He knows more about film than I do, so I'll let him pick my brain so he can kind of interview me. <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even pick up on that throughout the film. 
I don't know if you're meant to or if it's just that sort of just doesn't happen. It's he's just yeah. the driver, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that one, the one thing I thought about afterwards this film is actually he doesn't do that many getaways for a film that's about a getaway driver. No. There's not actually that much driving either. No, that's what I mean. It's just a bit. <laughs> but um, that opening five minutes just sells the film to me completely. Um, mm. and, and it's the high point of the film. But I, I do really enjoy the rest of them. The the only other thing I would say is. Um, there's some pretty shocking violence in the film as well. There's yeah. a few moments where, which really took me, and almost out of place in the film. Um, yeah, there's a certain scene in a lift, for example. Yeah. You just thought it would stop at a point, and it didn't. And it didn't, yeah. yeah. Um, but Winding Refn's got kind of, uh, he's, he's got history in that sense. He did, um, after something about Powerhammer, which is a, I can't remember the name, but oh, I've seen oh, it. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty messed up film. Oh, he did uh, And he's Bronson. <laughs> so, yeah, well, and that's why I was really excited about him doing the remake of Logan's Run with Ryan Gosling, but it appears neither of them are attached to that now, so that's that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, it has a lot of similarities with Pan's Labyrinth as well, in terms of the sort of shocking violence that it has in it. Mm. I think it's, it's very much that kind of Indian style of, you know, very contemplative and atmospheric, and then suddenly, bang, something really to jolt you out of it. Yeah, yeah, and, um, but that's some really good points. Brian Cranston's very good in it. Um, Albert Brooks, who I mainly know as the voice of Marlin from Finding Nemo, um, he's... He's very, very good in it as well as a kind of uh, mafioso type. And um, Christina Hendricks from, most famously from Mad Men, playing a very kind of... Mm. And there's a, there's a pretty nasty scene her as well. Just think of it. Um, I've only seen it once, but I'm desperate to watch it again, actually. I keep, I keep nearly watching it again. But I think it's the type of film that will be studied. Uh, you are talking about earlier uh, network being studied in mm-hmm. film. I think this is the type of film that will be studied as well. It's uh, it's, it's wonderfully shot, wonderful editing as well, and it's 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 a it's a master in building up atmosphere in a film, definitely. Basically, everything, all those sort of idle daydreams you had while playing GTA Vice City. This yes, yeah, ultra cool. There's so much Vice City, around. even the font of the title. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Just the whole thing feels really eighties. Yeah. yeah. I've heard an interesting um, theory around Brian Gosling's character in this film is that um, he has Asperger's syndrome. What's, what do you think of that, Steve? Do you think he's got Asperger's or is he just a bit weird? Um, I'm not sure. Because he's quite quiet throughout the film. He doesn't say much, does he? Well, there, he does there's a few scenes where he's a bit odd, yeah. Because uh, I've heard some people say that it's Gosling not being able to act, but we've seen him act well in other things. I don't think it's that. And then there may well be something to that. I think it's the opposite of that. Actually, he knows when you know you don't need to just speak, and, and there's a lot more to acting than, than dialogue. Mm. I think that's yeah. Good. I think he did it on purpose. Absolutely. I just think it's maybe his character because you know he doesn't say a lot in the film. He's kind of a bit socially awkward around people doesn't really pick yeah. up on other people's emotions you know they're all sort of traits yeah. of someone with Asperger's it just kind of yeah I thought that was quite an interesting theory and it, it goes some yeah. way to explaining a few of his actions in the film I definitely yeah. the, 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 the drive as well yeah. 
um, Finding Refn wasn't originally attached to it, and neither was Ryan Gosling. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's got an odd development, hasn't it? Yeah, it was originally Hugh Jackman, and I can't remember who's the director. And then Gosling replaced Hugh Jackman, and then the director left, and Gosling like picked Ref- Winding Refn. Hmm. Um, yeah. And Winding Refn um, has failed his driving test like fifty times or something. <laughs> so um, he was like, he doesn't have anything to do with cars at all. Ryan Gosling absolutely loves cars. But uh, he said, oh, I wanted to do it anyway. But he doesn't understand anything about cars. So then maybe that's why there's not much driving in. Quite possibly. Yeah, because um, I think Carrie Mulligan was basically driving him around in Hollywood when they were shooting it. He was having driving with her all the time. Um, yeah, no, it's that, that you're probably right. It probably, it's probably better that it did come from someone who hasn't got a weird obsession with cars, mm. to be honest. I think that I, you saw a different side to the film than if it had been made by someone who, for example, made... Uh, Fast and Furious or something like that. Um, right, James, what have you watched this week? Um, well, this week I've I'll, I'll watched a few films. i watched a couple of Steve Carell films I'll talk about very quickly. Um, and this link's quite nice. The first one I watched was Crazy Stupid Love, which I've been meaning to watch for a little while. Um, it stars Steve Carell, Julianne Moore, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Basic story is Steve Carell plays a guy called Cal, who's a middle-aged man whose wife, who he, they were high school sweethearts, she's having an affair with Kevin Bacon, not the actor, but someone played by Kevin Bacon, and leaves him. And, um, and basically this guy called Jacob, who is a real smooth killer ladies man, uh, spots him in a bar, and he's played by Ryan Gosling, and decides to help him become a ladies man. Um, and it, there was definite shades of, say, the 40-year-old virgin here. Um, which again was another Steve Carell leading film. And I can, he does seem to play quite often a certain type of character, but he played it really well in this really, really funny first half of the film, especially the interplay between Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling. And I think those were the best bits of the film. Um, well, I would say actually for about half an hour, uh, Gosling's character disappears from the story and the film kind of loses momentum during that section, stalls a little bit. It, it, it still ends quite nicely, um, but yeah, it was it was a shame because I thought it was due to be a really really good film. Instead, it was a good film that I I did I did like, um, and I you know to be honest, I identified a little too much with Steve Carell's character if, if I'm honest. Um, but I know Jerry says he he's seen it. Yeah, I really liked it actually, but I went in sort of not knowing anything about it, no expectations whatsoever about it, and. I was really pleasantly surprised. It's a very tidy little film. I think it's very, you know, it's very mm. well controlled and well made. Um, Ryan Gosling's character in it is actually a lot more than I thought initially it was going to be really stereotypical. And the characters are actually very well rounded in it, you know, mm. Lee Gosling and, and Steve Carell. And it's not yeah. Steve Carell hamming it up as well. It's nice. They, they recognize that he's, he's good at playing all sorts. Yeah. And he does a lot in that film. He's not just being funny. He's not, you know, He's not just trying to be a, a clown. He does all sorts, and they let him do that a bit more, which which a lot of Hollywood films, as opposed to you know what he does in mm. Office, a lot of Hollywood yeah. films like to just typecast him as a bit of a clown, and and they yeah. let him do a bit more of this, and it really works. Definitely. Um, and then I watched him in a very similar kind of role a few years later. Um, it's that she is seeking a friend for the end of the world, which is written and directed by Lorena Scar- um, Scafaria, who did Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. And it's Carell and Kira Knightley. Um, yeah, I know that put a lot of people off, but uh, basically, main story of this is an asteroid nears Earth and some kind of 
Armageddon-style rescue mission has failed, and um, but a Dodge, played by Steve Carell, his wife leaves him in a panic, and he decides to take a road trip. The one on Earth knows they've got three weeks left to live, um, which is that's the setup, and that's where a lot of the humour comes from, actually. And he decides to take a road trip to reunite with his high school sweetheart, and he takes with him his neighbour, played by Kira Knightley, who's a British girl who has missed the last planes out of America back to her family. Um, so she goes on the road trip with him in search of a plane. Do you know what? It's better than I expected it to be, to be honest. It got, I think it got, I don't know if it got a critical mauling, but it certainly completely flopped at the UK box office. It looks, um, what was that? It did look shit, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, to who? The yeah, trailer looked terrible. The trailer looked terrible. Um, but there was a lot of really good humour. There was a lot of, it found a lot of humour from the fact that humans knew they had three weeks left to live. It was quite an optimistic view of humanity and there was, there was a lovely party, a kind of suburban party, almost last supper with a couple of weeks to go where everyone's kind of getting off with each other, a bit of white talking. Someone said, oh, I bought heroin. I've never done heroin. So they all decide to do heroin and stuff like that. It was it was very kind of kooky, but lighthearted, but nice. Um, and I like the idea that people were still going into work. And the, uh, only some people though, in the the office where Steve Crow's character works, they're going, well, who wants to be chief financial officer you know, for the last <laughs> two weeks? And it, was, it was quite nice. And then I always like a road trip anyway. Um, but yeah, generally, it was nice um, and optimistic, uh, and there were some funny bits as well, even if the characters were a little bit affected and quirky for my liking. But I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, but the film I really, really want to talk about, which is, is amazing, I, I'm so um, Rust and Bone. Uh, I don't know. Have any of you got around to seeing Rust and Bone yet? This is the Mario Kart one, isn't it? Yeah, that's it, yeah. No. I haven't seen it, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. Yeah, um, it was pretty acclaimed at this year's Cannes Festival. Okay, stick with me. Do you know, you might not know what it's about. Um, a single parent, uh, a single parent father leaves Belgium to live with his sister on the coast in front. He's a, a security nightclub bouncer and also does some bare knuckle boxing. And he develops a relationship with a killer whale trainer, planned by Mario Cotia, um, who has a horrific accident and loses both her legs. Um, you think, yeah, that's, that's an interesting setup. Uh, do you know what? There is, there, there is some pretty brutal bare knuckle boxing. There's quite a lot of sex in this film. And there, and some of the most wonderful cinema I've seen all year is beautifully shot. It's, um, directed by Jacques Audiard, who did the, the beat that my heart skipped and a profit, uh, in the last few years. Uh, and yes, I said, Marion Cotillard, uh, uh, Co- and, um, Matthias Schoenartz is the, uh, Ali, the, the boxer and the, the single father. It's, it's just such a wonderful film. The characters are so flawed. Uh, a bit like we were talking about earlier with Network. No one here is, is perfect. No one here is who we're rooting for specifically. They're just normal people who, make some good decisions and make some pretty terrible decisions. Um, wonderfully shot. And there's, there's two absolutely amazing set pieces which leave you feeling sick and punched in the stomach. Um, but in between those two set pieces, there's just wonderful performances all round. Uh, the young boy gives a fantastic performance as well. Um, yeah, Kotiel puts in 
if you ask me, it's an Oscar-worthy performance of Stephanie, the, the killer whale trainer, um, finally laying to rest her frankly shoddy performance in The Dark Knight Rises. Um, yeah, she, she's not great in Nathan films. Uh, and it's, I've had a few conversations with people who said she can't act because they've just seen her in Nolan films. And it's like, no, this is, this is her acting and she's absolutely incredible in this. Um, it's also got a fantastic soundtrack. Uh, it, I think it's only the second soundtrack I've bought this year after seeing the film on the same day. Uh, it's got a brilliant score by Alexandra Desplat, who did Argo, um, and also did fantastic list of Fox and quite a few other films, but great songs that fit perfectly with the scenes they used in it. It's got songs from Bon Iver, John Cooper Clark, uh, Licky Lee and Django Django, and you will not believe this, it uses Katy Perry's Firework in the most incredible way. Honestly, I came out of the cinema and I downloaded Katy Perry's Firework on my phone and listened to it four times on the way home. That's how much this film affected me. Um, it, it, so you're basically saying it made you mental. Yes, yes. Um, but it, it just fitted with the film. And, it, uh, and I'd, you're, I'd have to discuss it with you afterwards to say why it was the perfect song to use in that situation. But it really was. And it actually, it's made that song, I've got an emotional connection to that song because it was used in this incredible film. Um, I, I don't want to say too much more about it simply because it... I think it's the type of film you need. The less you know about it, the better uh, before going in, because it completely shocked me in some ways, and it was not at all what I was expecting. But it, it's it's not cynical. It's just a truthful, truthful look at people in a relationship. And, and, and I, I can't speak about it. I absolutely, absolutely loved it. It's definitely going to be in my top ten of the year, quite possibly in my top three of the year. Uh, incredible incredible filmmaking okay uh let's finish off what we've been watching with what jerry has been watching okay um i wrote uh, well i had an article published on the website last week uh, about best films from 2001 and it spurred me to re-watch a film i haven't watched in a while which i absolutely love which is the devil's backbone uh, which is the guillermo del toro film uh, about uh, a young lad who is during the Civil War, towards the end of the Civil War, and his, his dad's died in the war, and he comes to this orphanage where there's something a bit spooky going on. And it's not just the fact that there's a ghost stuck in the halls that makes it a bit dodgy, shall we say. And I believe Owen's just watched this. Yeah, I finished watching it about an hour ago. So I'd be interested to hear what Owen thinks of it as the, the resident horror guru. But it's not really a horror film. <laughs> it's, it, no, it's not a horror film. I don't, it has a ghost. But it's more of a drama that features a ghost, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. They sort of use the ghost as the sort of the central theme, the, the thing that the narrative revolves around, I suppose, don't they? Yeah. And it's interesting that they, they did that when there's so much else that they could be focusing on, you know, with the whole Spanish Civil War stuff. And yet they choose to have what, this ghost that's the, the presence for the film, this, this haunting presence to it, when there's actually a whole lot of other stuff that they could be using as a haunting presence. I'm sure you know more about it with the sort of Spanish history and, and things like that, but um, I just thought it, it was good. I wouldn't say it was better than Pan's Labyrinth, but at the same time I'm trying to convince myself that it's an unfair comparison because they're two completely different films in the way that they're made, I guess. 
Interesting you should say that, because Del Toro reckons that the Pan's Labyrinth and this are brother and sister. So he thinks that this, I mean, it, generally speaking, that they're both sort of set in and around the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both about ostensibly the same thing, which is a child, of, uh, you know, yeah. a, a sort of fairly old child, but not quite a teenager, coming to terms with how horrendous the world is outside of them, but being sort of slightly insulated from that, and then the world just sort of, the horrible brutality of the world crashing in on their sort of consciousness. Um, and this one is about a boy, and Pan's Labyrinth is about a girl. So this is like the brother, the sibling relationship, and Pan's Labyrinth is meant to be the, the sister. Well, I, I, kind, I kind of found it, it, it was different, um, in the sense that, you know, one is about sort of escapism, and is this real, is it a fantasy, is, you know, what's actually going on, and this one was more like just a story about some orphans. Um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. this one more than Pan's Labyrinth is, is very much about, um, you know, the fact, I mean, the tagline says that the living will always be more dangerous than the dead, and it's about the fact that there's this ghost, and that is nowhere near the worst thing that's happening in this film. Mm-hmm. It's not the worst thing that could happen, and it certainly isn't the worst thing that happens, and then the ghost actually is, you know, it's, it's fear-inducing in a way, and some of the scenes are genuinely well-done horror scenes with a lot of tension and a lot of sort of spookiness. And then other times, it, the ghost isn't that important. It's, it's the humans that are worse than the ghost. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's the real intention of the film is to show you that, you know, well, there might be ghosts, but, you know, humans are, are way, way worse than any sort of supernatural things that you can imagine that may or may not exist. Although, interestingly, Del Toro um, reckons that he was haunted by his uncle's ghost, and that's kind of what inspired this. Okay. A bit mental. Yeah. Mental. <laughs> um, it's a very, 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 very good film. Um, there's some brilliant sort of acting in it. I mean, Marisa Perez is one of the, one of, if not the best sort of Spanish actresses of the last half a century. Um, she plays a, a sort of one-legged matron, shall we say. Um, and Eduardo Noriega, who is, plays this brilliant villain. And he's not really done much since, but he's really sort of chillingly horrible in this film, isn't he? I mean, he's not, he's not a nice man and he no. makes it sort of complicated. Um, and he was, he was very good in, um, Open Your Eyes, the original Vanilla Sky as well, back in the day. Um, but I mean, this film is just brilliant. There's, there's some good child acting as well, as always. Um, there's a little bit of Del Toro's stuff, but this is kind of very much an early thing in his progression. If you watch his, his later films are probably better and more subtle. And Pan's Labyrinth in particular is, is better than this, but this kind of needed to happen for Pan's Labyrinth to get made. There's there's one bit as well I was talking to on before before we came on air, which is um the the Marisa Paredes character and oh god I can't remember the the guy who plays uh, Federico Lupi plays this doctor um and she loves poetry and as she there is a very emotional scene shall we say where he learns a new poem to speak to her and he recites it and it's absolutely brilliant and it's beautiful. And it's so well done. And it's like, you know, even though this is a ghost story and, and it's about the horror of war and stuff, there's just this real beautiful moment, moment of pure cinema where there's a, a connection between two characters uh, through poetry, which you just don't get really in Hollywood cinema. When, when can you ever think of a Hollywood film where there was two characters connecting in a very emotional and final manner through a poem? I'm struggling, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> 
So, I mean, it's, it is that kind of thing. It has that very sort of European feel, even though, I mean, I know he's, he's Mexican, but he's very much Spanish based. It's a brilliant film. Really, really, really good film. Um, I think I probably love it a little bit more than Owen. <laughs> I did like it. I didn't, didn't love it, but I did like it. It's a very good film. Okay. Uh, so that's what we've been watching this week. And now on to the new release we are reviewing, which is End of Watch, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. And James, why don't you introduce the film for us? Okay, so yeah, End of Watch is the story of uh, two two cops uh, share a squad car, their partners, um, who is a mix of found footage type footage, Mixed in with some very handheld action. Um, it's written and directed by the guy who wrote Trading Down the Fast and the Furious as well. So very, very interesting. Um, look, it's also apparently based on two. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Real police officers from the 1980s, but only kind of very loosely based on them. Okay, so... um. What did we all think of the film then? I liked some of it, and I didn't like some of it. It's a very mixed film. I don't think having a combination of um, found footage, handheld camera, and normal kind of, you know, standard filming works. I don't think I don't think mixing them up worked at all. No, I, I think it, I think it should have gone with one or the other. Yeah, I, I totally agree because um, it, it's almost like he wants to have his cake and eat it. He wants mm. to have those moments where cameras talk directly to character because it's an easy way of getting their um, their emotions and their motivations out to the audience. So that that's nice, easy to achieve. But at the same time, he wants to be able to show the fights uh, and the shootouts in as kind of like stylized a way as possible uh, and i totally agree you, you do one or the other because found footage or you know i've moaned about found footage enough on this podcast but it has its selling points and it has its pluses um but it loses that unique selling point of being ultra real and bring us into characters worlds if you then kind of like just forget it for half the film mm-hmm. um and it also means that the, that the kind of standard narrative suffers from crowbarring pretty poor reasons for the fan footage recording into it. The fact that he's he's had to do a supplementary course at his law degree, so he's taking filmmaking just seemed Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like when the gangs are filming stuff on their mobile yeah. phones. If you were a, like, if, if you were, who's putting that into this film? Yeah. I, I didn't get and, how it yeah. was being if, made into a film. If you were a gang, surely you wouldn't be filming all your illegal activities. Because it's evidence. If you get caught wielding guns around going, we're going to shoot these fucking cops, then, you know, if you don't get shot yourself, 
and then they find yeah. this tape is pretty damning evidence. So yeah. I don't, and I didn't I un- and I didn't understand what was it the CIA or the FBI but there was two bits of footage from them with sort of night vision that was was put into the film. Oh, yeah, and I just thought, that was um, and, that was CIA. Yeah, and it was yeah. it was important to the plot obviously, so you knew what was happening. But it was just like, well, how's that got into this final piece? Is this meant to be a found footage film where somebody's put together all the bits about these two policemen and their life and their career and and, and this particular incident to make some kind of film or documentary or whatever? Or is it, you know, in which case some of the bits going into the film don't work at all and make no sense? Or is it meant to be, or is it meant to be just like a, Standard film, nothing to do with a found footage thing. In which case, why have you done it found footage from the start? Yeah, it's it's weird, and I think um, yeah, they could have actually done. I think they, if they thought about it, they could have done a pretty good found footage film from mm-hmm. this. Like you say, they would have had to have sacrificed the uh, sacrificed the bits where we're spending time with the gangs, but at the same time, I don't think that would be a major loss because. They were pretty one-dimensional mm. in this anyway. That's another. That was another poor point for the film. I thought was that the villains in this, we didn't understand really anything about their motivations. They had there was no real charisma. There was that big evil guy who I recognised from the trailer, and that's about the one thing he said in the entire film. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought the villains were poor. Uh, it's the third time I've seen two cops trapped in an apartment block. Mm. Um, under siege this year in a film uh, and whereas in the first two times that happened in the Rage and Dread there was a, charismat- a charismatic and interesting villain at the heart of that here it was just like that was just some street punks but, well you never really got to see the villain you got you, you no. only got to see the henchman in effect you know yeah. you find out why from the CIA bits of footage why they're trying to, to off Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael yeah. Penner's characters. You find that out, but you don't really ever get to see or interact with the big boss. You only get to deal with the henchmen in any kind of detail. And, and which the... is realistic, which mm. is, you know, because that, that was who they would kind of encounter. But, but sometimes are you re- going to do a realistic yeah. film, or are you going to do a cop action yeah, film? Yeah, and sometimes realistic just doesn't work. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, he doesn't seem to have any faith in his own mm. sort of um, you know, filming technique. The way it just switches, I think, just shows that actually he's just putting bits into the film, like mm. the stuff with the, the rival gang, to just, you know, pad it out a little bit. I think it's actually yeah. a film you could just skip the first 40 minutes of, just go straight into it after 40 minutes and be completely up mm. to speed with what's happening. I, mean, I, I don't think, think there's yeah. an awful lot that happens at the beginning which gives you any, any no. you know, valuable detail about the, the relationship well, I, between the two no, it, it, although it, the first 40 minutes is my favourite bit of the film I'll be honest like, yes, when, I liked when, it. When, it, when it felt more like a documentary mm. yeah. I liked it yeah but I don't, I don't think it actually added anything to the film you, there's, no, there's no because of the direction they went yeah but, I mean one of the problems I found with it with, is it's essentially a buddy cop film and whether you go down like a a training day route where it's two cops, whether you go down a more bad boys or lethal weapon or hot fuzz or whatever kind of route with a buddy cop film, the the most important thing is the two the two cops. And and if they've got to be likable and have sort of a decent exchange of of banter, for lack of a better word. 
And this yeah. film, I just didn't like either of them. They weren't horrible oh, people. No, I, I didn't think they were horrible or nasty. I just didn't like them. I just thought, I just don't, I just thought there's no real reason for me to really want to care about what happens to these people. They're not, they're not charming. They're not overly nice. They're not, you know, witty or they're not, and maybe it's because they were trying to do a more gritty or realistic cop film. I just didn't like either of the main characters, which made me just think, well, why do I really care what happens to them in the end? I, I actually did like them. I'll be honest. Some of my favourite bits of the film were just those two talking in in squad car. Um, but, but, but I, I thought I, then I've got it written down here as one of my good points. Uh, I did actually really like uh, Jill and Norman Penner's performance, and I yeah. like their chemistry together. Um, yeah, I, agree. I, I I do think that's why they had in the family stuff though, Steve, to give you a reason yeah. to kind of root for them. Because uh, um, yeah, no, you're right. They're not. They're not outright funny, um, and they're not outright amazing people. They're they're still being quite normal people. But I thought they had some. Yeah, I thought they had some funny lines. Um, and and there was a. I, I I genuinely thought there was some. There was some good uh, chemistry there. I also do think that you know talking about there was some really good handheld shooting uh, that. Some of it was shot really well, which, like Owen says, is a real shame that uh, Ayers seems to have had no confidence in his shooting style to flip between one thing and another. Because some bits of the film were shot really well, and, and I do, I did really like the kind of the day and the lifestyle build up in the first mm. forty-five minutes. I thought this is doing something a bit different to the I, usual cop I just, film. I just think and then it's like, oh, now we're going to do the usual cop film exactly. That was really disappointing. It was a, it, it was essentially a really cliched story, but they were doing it in a very uncliched fashion mm. to start with, and that's why that was what I really liked about it. It's just a shame, yeah, that it just decided in the end. Um, well, no, it's going to actually fill out the last bit with a proper cop film that you were mm. used to. I mean, uh, I, I think they could have. I mean, some of the action scenes were done quite well. But I just think you should have gambled and done the whole thing as a, a found footage or handheld camera thing. I mean, a lot, I know, I know just from watching occasionally like rubbish police camera programs, a lot of cop yeah. cars now have cameras fitted into them to film what's going Especially on. Especially in America, they have for yeah. years. And, and, and again, um, when we've had this debate about found footage, that to me actually is legitimate found footage because it is. You, you're right, that is footage I can imagine mm. being filmed most of the time. And those little lapel cameras, they could have given, they could have come up with a reason for them mm. to be wearing them. Or, or, uh, the, or you could have, yeah, you could have had, you could have had these two policemen being followed and having a documentary made on them. So everything that yeah. happens is being filmed for a documentary that has been given the go ahead by the LAPD. And yeah. some at some points they've got have, a, some points yeah, they've got a camera yeah some points they've got a camera crew with them and other points like the final piece that they wouldn't they just have the ones clipped onto them and yeah. and you know there's ways that you could have got around that not having the the bad guys having anything filmed you could have had them visit them more for crimes they committed you could have you know you could have had them say arrest one and then through some technicality yeah. like happens he gets off. So you know that he's been arrested, but he gets back out. And then they they explained it with with the the guy that they the, that Michael Penner's character fights with in in one part of the film. Yeah. He explains to them that there's a, there's a price on their head, 
you know, that's you know, a couple more scenes like that with with yeah. with a cam with a kind of handheld camera, it were it, it it takes out the need for a sort of needless FBI CIA footage shoehorned in. It doesn't really work. Yeah, you you could lose all the stuff of um the the gangs because they don't do anything with it in the film anyway. Can you mm. remember a single? Can you remember any of their names? Can no. you remember any of their kind of motivations? No, because they were such one-dimensional characters. And at one point, a girl kissed another girl. That's that's what I know about two of the bad girls because they kissed each other. Yeah, it was it, that was actually really horribly cliched uh, and one-dimensional. Uh, and and we we know nothing of them. So yeah, you could have easily dropped them and done it all in found footage. You wouldn't have needed to know what the gangs were up to because the the film because it stands didn't bother with that so you wouldn't have lost it oh, and what seems quite stupid to me was that even the bits that weren't done with handheld camera or found footage style filming seemed to try and imitate that yeah and, mm. and so it just makes you think even more why not do the whole film that way exactly you know, there was like some shots in the very opening right near the opening where they're having a briefing where the captain comes in mm. um, and he's got his camera on the table uh, and they've got the lapel cameras so why is it cutting we could have got all of that scene from mm. their cameras mm. there's no reason for the other bit so yeah you're exactly right it feels it just feels confused can I give a sort of an example of a point in the film where I thought the same footage worked really well yeah of course you can there's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of violence in this film there's a lot mm-hmm. of violent scenes. We talked about it in Drive, and I think some of the scenes here are just are just as bad as that, really. When they yeah. open the cupboard and they find the things that are in the cupboard, yeah, say, yeah, that worked really well. I thought, yeah, in a lot of other films, they probably would have cut away. You wouldn't have seen it. It would have just been sort of hinted at. In this, because it's on a film footage, you see what the characters see. Therefore, you get a full shot of what's going on. And it worked really well later on when the um, the other cops get attacked. And yeah. I think, again, it works really well with yeah. the same footage camera. It's just pinned to them, whatever the character's looking yeah. at you see. And I think that's yeah. the point where it did work. Mm, I mean, um, yeah. the action films like that, like you said, when no two cops are attacked and they find them, or when they run into the house that's on fire, both mm. look really good and work really well. But it's yeah. just sort of, the, the film seems confused. It does. But yeah. I think a lot of times where other films have been suggested, because of this same footage thing, it, it works in its favour. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's definitely some... It does use some... That's the frustrating thing about the film, is there's definitely promise here. It's a really good idea and concept, and I think at the heart of it, also Anna Kendricks is good. There's some good supporting characters in it. Um, so I, I liked it, but there were, I, I don't get the hype it's getting. I don't get the William Friedkin apparently, and you know he should know about cop films having been directed to French Connection. But he said this is the best police film he's ever seen, and, and I can't, I can't agree with that. Um, I think it's because it, it makes good. Them, it's solid. It makes them still seem like cops, though, doesn't? It? Which is quite it does, good. Yeah. It doesn't turn them into super detectives who are still wearing a police uniform no. or anything like that. They yeah. are just cops. Who I can to be. imagine officers will love this film yeah yeah i can imagine that it it really does kind of glorify the police um mm-hmm. that's the other thing that did actually really annoy me was um at one point one of their 
officers who've been in the job for a while, does this massive long speech about how the department is eventually going to fuck them in the ass. And he says, LAPD are going to fuck you in the ass. Um, it's a really big long speech. Uh, but then after that, they, they get medals. Um, at no point is it suggested that the department will ever like not look after them. And that felt really weird, because I kept thinking, right, okay, at some point, someone's going to hang them out to dry. And, and uh, it felt like at no point that, that felt, was meant to feel really foreboding, I thought, and then nothing came of that. And there was a few small plot lines which seemed to suggest something, and then nothing came of them. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I, still, I still enjoyed it. I'm, I'm still glad I saw it. I just don't think it's... Incredible! I don't think yeah. it's brilliant. I think it's a pretty good film. It was it yeah. was definitely watchable. It was it was enjoyable in parts. Um, the only bit that annoyed me was the what seemed well uh, an OAP woman in the cinema just insisted on talking all the way through it, which was <laughs> just. Uh, but she did fall over on the way in, so it made up for it by laughing at her. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually loved all the hip-hop and everything as well. Yeah, I couldn't really understand why she'd have picked to, to see that film with all the, the hip-hop, gangster rap and swearing. But, yeah. you know, there we go. Whatever float she's like. Is Jerry still about? Are you still about, Jerry? I am indeed. You are indeed, because you haven't seen this, have you? Nope. What would it take to sort of convince you to watch it, then? Have you you've seen the trailer, obviously? I have, yeah. Um... I don't know. I like most of the male leads. I like Anna Kendrick. How much? How much does she get used in this? Um, not a huge amount, but she's very good in it. I think she's actually a fantastic actress. I think you know mm. the fact that she was in the Twilight films kind of covered that up a bit. Do you know what I mean? She, she's yeah. not quite taken seriously. No, she, she's she's very good in this, but she's in a bit of a cliched role. She does very good with what she's got. Mm, she's not got. Yeah. She's not got a massive part either. I mean, no one in the film's really got a big part other than the two cops. Yeah. So, Jill on Penner, yeah. yeah. So, go on, if, if you had to sell me this film, if you had to try and convince me to, to go and watch it, or convince me if you thought that I shouldn't watch it, what would you say, quickly? Well, I think that you should watch it if you like cop films. I think it's very interesting, particularly the first part, it's a very interesting take on a rather cliched uh, genre. Um, so if you do like cop, buddy cop movies, uh, then it's worth a watch. If you're not that keen on them anyway, it won't convince you any other way. And if you don't like same footage films, then don't go into it expecting to be converted to, to liking same footage either. That's what I would say, though. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, and I'd say if, if you, as you say, you're a fan of Jill and Horton Penner, it's <laughs> worth watching it because they are, they're both very good at it. Oh. They basically make the film, don't they? If yeah. it was, you know, if it was yeah. any other two people, I'm not sure how well the relationship would have worked. You can tell the work they did on it as well, because apparently they both spent five months going on 12-hour um, drive-bys with police officers. Um, <laughs> and on his first day of doing research, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal someone get, saw someone get murdered while he was tagging along with the police officer. So... He, he's put a lot of effort in, so I think he deserves he deserves you to go and see it for that reason. <laughs> okay, so that's all for this week's podcast. Other than the fact that did anyone see the Die Hard Five trailer before this film? 
Yeah. Yeah, so I have five yeah, channels. Yeah, so. It's going to be bad, isn't it? I'm, I don't want yeah. it to be. It, but... it, it, it looks it bad, um, but it's still got John McClane jumping out of stuff and shooting people. So. Clearly, we're still going to watch it. It's still going to be oh, a yeah. main review the week it comes out, but I'm, I'm, I'm worried. Um, website. Uh, no, sorry, what's up next week? Uh, next week is um, our first ever inductee into the Fail Critics Hall of Fame. Uh, so it's going to be a surprise inductee on day many because we haven't chosen who is yet. Yeah, surprise to us yes. at the moment. No, no, yeah. Don't give it away. <laughs> <laughs> we know exactly what we're doing. A little peek behind the curtain. <laughs> so no no uh, new release next week? No. no. So it's uh, going to be what we've been watching uh, and then we are going to induct our first ever person into our Hall of Fame and talk about their life's work. Okay, uh, the website is where? It's failcritic.com. We've got some good articles coming up this week. Um, we've got Decade in Film 1981 coming up this week. We've got a couple of film reviews coming out. Um, yeah, no, there'll, there'll be some interesting stuff on there this week. And where's Twitter? Twitter is at Failed Critics and Facebook is facebook.com slash Failed Critics. There we go. So thanks for listening. Thanks for everybody's contributions, including Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music. the last planes out of America back to her family. Um, so she goes on the road trip with him in search of a plane. Do you know what? It's better than I expected it to be, to be honest. It got, I think it got, I don't know if it got a critical mauling, but it certainly completely flopped at the UK box office. It looks... Um, what was that? It did look shit, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, Particularly the yeah, trailer looked terrible. The trailer looked terrible. Um, but there was a lot of really good humour. There was a lot of, it found a lot of humour from the fact that humans knew they had three weeks left to live. It was quite an optimistic view of humanity. And there was, there was a lovely party, a kind of suburban party, almost last supper with a couple of weeks to go, where everyone's kind of getting off with each other, a bit of white chocolate. And someone's like, oh, I bought heroin. I've never done heroin. So they all decide to do heroin and stuff like that. It was, it was very kind of kooky, but lighthearted, but nice. Um, and I like the idea that people were still going into work and the, only some people though, and the, the office where Steve Crow's character works, they're going around, who wants to be chief financial officer, you know, for the last <laughs> two weeks. It was, it was quite nice. And then I always like a road trip anyway. Um, but yeah, generally, it was nice um, and optimistic, uh, and there were some funny bits as well, even if the characters were a little bit affected and quirky for my liking. But I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, but the film I really, really want to talk about, which is, is amazing, uh, I'm so um, Rust and Bone. Uh, I don't know. Have any of you got around to seeing Rust and Bone yet? This is the very one, isn't it? Yeah, that's it, yeah. No. I haven't seen it, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. Yeah, um, it was pretty acclaimed at this year's Cannes Festival. Okay, stick with me. Do you know, you might not know what it's about. Um, 
a single parent, uh, a single parent father leaves Belgium to live with his sister on the coast in front. He's a, a security nightclub bouncer and also does some bare knuckle boxing. And he develops a relationship with a killer whale trainer played by Mario Cotia, um, who has a horrific accident and loses both her legs. Um, you think, yeah, that's, that's an interesting setup. Uh, do you know what? There is, there, there is some pretty brutal bare knuckle boxing. There's quite a lot of sex in this film. And there, and some of the most wonderful cinema I've seen all year is beautifully shot. It's, um, directed by Jacques Audiard, who did the, the beat that my heart skipped and a profit, uh, in the last few years. Uh, and yes, I said, Ma- Marion Cotillard, uh, uh, and, um, Matthias Schoenartz is the, uh, Ali, the, the boxer and the, the single father. It's, it's just such a wonderful film. The characters are so flawed. Uh, a bit like we were talking about earlier with Network. No one here is, is perfect. No one here is who we're rooting for specifically. They're just normal people who make some good decisions and make some pretty terrible decisions. Um, wonderfully shot. And there's, there's two absolutely amazing set pieces which leave you feeling sick and punched in the stomach. Um, but in between those two set pieces, there's just wonderful performances all round. Uh, the young boy gives a fantastic performance as well. Um, yeah, Cotillard puts in, to be, if you ask me, it's an Oscar worthy performance of Stephanie, the, the killer whale trainer, um, finally laying to rest her frankly shoddy performance in The Dark Knight Rises. Um, yeah, she, she's not great in Nathan films. Uh, and it's, I've had a few conversations with people who said she can't act because they've just seen her in Nolan films. And it's like, no, this is, this is her acting and she's absolutely incredible in this. Um, it's also got a fantastic soundtrack. Uh, it, I think it's only the second soundtrack I've bought this year after seeing the film on the same day. Uh, it's got a brilliant score by Alexandra Desplat who did Argo, um, and also did fantastic list of box and quite a few other films, but great songs that fit perfectly with the scenes they used in it. It's got songs from Bon Iver, John Cooper Clark, uh, Licky Lee and Django Django, and you will not believe this, it uses Katy Perry's firework in the most incredible way. Honestly, I came out of the cinema and I downloaded Katy Perry's firework on my phone and listened to it four times on the way home. That's how much this film affected me. Um, it, so you're basically saying it made you mental. Yes, yes. Um, but it, it just fitted with the film, and, it, uh, and I'd, you're, I'd have to discuss it with you afterwards to say why it was the perfect song to use in that situation. But it really was, and it actually it's made that song. I've got an emotional connection to that song because it was used in this incredible film. Um, I, I don't want to say too much more about it simply because it. Uh, I think it's the type of film you need. The less you know about it, the better, uh, before going in, because it completely shocked me in some ways, and it was not at all what I was expecting. But it, it's it's not cynical. It's just a truthful, truthful look at people in a relationship. And, and, and I, I can't speak about it highly. I absolutely, absolutely loved it. It's definitely going to be in my top ten of the year, quite possibly in my top three of the year. Uh, incredible incredible filmmaking okay uh let's finish off what we've been watching with what jerry has been watching okay um i wrote uh, well i had an article published on the website last week 
uh, about the best films from 2001. And it spurred me to re-watch a film I haven't watched in a while, which I absolutely love, which is The Devil's Backbone, uh, which is the Guillermo del Toro film uh, about uh, a young lad who is during the Civil War, towards the end of the Civil War, and his, his dad's died in the war, and he comes to this orphanage where there's something a bit spooky going on. And it's not just the fact that there's a ghost stuck in the halls that makes it a bit dodgy, shall we say. And I believe Owen's just watched this. Yeah, I finished watching it about an hour ago. So I'd be interested to hear what Owen thinks of it as the resident horror guru. But it's not really a horror <laughs> film. It's, it's, no, it's not a horror film. I don't, it has a ghost. But it's more of a drama that features a ghost, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. They sort of use the ghost as the sort of the central theme, the, the thing that the narrative revolves around, I suppose, don't they? Yeah. And it's interesting that they, they did that when there's so much else that they could be focusing on, you know, with the whole Spanish Civil War stuff. And yet they choose to have, what well, this ghost that's the, the presence for the film, this, this haunting presence to it, when there's actually a whole lot of other stuff that they could be using as a haunting presence. I'm sure you know more about it with the sort of Spanish history and, and things like that. But um, I just thought it, it was good. I wouldn't say it was better than Pan's Labyrinth, but at the same time, I'm trying to convince myself that it's an unfair comparison because they're two completely different films in the way that they're made, I guess. Well, interesting you should say that because Del Toro reckons that they're Pan's Labyrinth and this are a brother and sister. So um, he yeah. thinks that this, I mean, it, generally speaking, they're, they're both sort of set in and around the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both about ostensibly the same thing, which is a child, uh, you know, yeah. a, a sort of fairly old child, but not quite a teenager, coming to terms with how horrendous the world is outside of them, but being sort of slightly insulated from that, and then the world just sort of the horrible brutality of the world crashing in on their sort of consciousness. Um, and this one is about a boy, and Pan's Labyrinth is about a girl. So this is like the brother, this sibling relationship, and Pan's Labyrinth is meant to be the, the sister. Well, I, I, kind of, I kind of found it, it, it was different um, in the sense that, you know, one is about sort of escapism and is this a real, is it a fantasy, is, you know, what's actually going on? And this one was more like just a story about some orphans. Um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. this one more than Pan's Labyrinth is, is very much about, um, you know, the fact that, I mean, the tagline says that the living will always be more dangerous than the dead. And it's about the fact that there's this ghost. And that is nowhere near the worst thing that's happening in this film. Mm. It's not the worst thing that could happen. And it certainly isn't the worst thing that happens. And then the ghost actually is, you know, it's, it's fear-inducing in a way. And some of the scenes are genuinely well-done horror scenes with a lot of tension and a lot of sort of spookiness. And then other times, it, the ghost isn't that important. It's, it's the humans that are worse than the ghost. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the real intention of the film is to show you that, you know, well, there might be ghosts, but you know, humans are, are way, way worse than any sort of supernatural things that you can imagine that may or may not exist. Although, interestingly, Del Toro um, reckons that he was haunted by his uncle's ghost, and that's kind of what inspired this. Okay. A bit mental. Yeah. Mental. <laughs> um, it's a very, 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 very good film. Um, it's, there's some brilliant sort of acting in it. I mean, Marisa Perez is one of, the, one of, if not the best, sort of Spanish actresses of the last half a century. Um, she plays a, a sort of one-legged matron, shall we say. 
Um, and Eduardo Noriega, who is, plays this brilliant villain. And he's not really done much since, but he's really sort of chillingly horrible in this film, isn't he? I mean, he's not, he's not a nice man. And he no. makes it sort of complicated. Um, and he was, he was very good in, um, Open Your Eyes, the original Vanilla Sky as well, back in the day. Um, but I mean, this film is just brilliant. There's, there's some good child acting as well, as always. Um, there's a little bit of Del Toro's stuff, but this is kind of very much an early thing in his progression. If you watch his, his later films are probably better and more subtle. And Pan's Labyrinth in particular is, is better than this, but this kind of needed to happen for Pan's Labyrinth to get made. There's, there's one bit as well I was talking to on before, before we came on air, which is, um, the, the Marisa Paredes character and, oh god, I can't remember the, the guy who plays, uh, Federico Lupi plays this doctor, um, and she loves poetry and as she, there is a very emotional scene, shall we say, where he learns a new poem to speak to her and he recites it. It's absolutely brilliant. It's beautiful. It's so well done, and it's like you know, even though this is a ghost story and, and it's about the horror of war and stuff, there's just this real beautiful moment, moment of pure cinema where there's a, a connection between two characters uh, through poetry, which you just don't get really in Hollywood cinema. When when can you ever think of a Hollywood film where there was two characters connecting in a very emotional and final manner through a poem? Struggling, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it is that kind of thing. It has that very sort of European feel, even though, I mean, I know he's, he's Mexican, but he's very much Spanish based. It's a brilliant film. Really, really, really good film. Um, I think I probably love it a little bit more than Owen. <laughs> I did like it. I didn't, didn't love it, but I did like it. It's a very good film. Okay. Uh, so that's what we've been watching this week. And now on to the new release we are reviewing, which is End of Watch, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, and James, why don't you introduce the film for us? Okay, so yeah, End of Watch is the story of uh, two two cops, uh, share a squad car, their partners, um, who are, it is a mix of found footage type footage mixed in with some very handheld action. Um, it's written and directed by the guy who wrote trading down the fast and the furious as well so very very interesting um look it's also apparently based on two real life police officers from the 1980s but only kind of very loosely based on them okay so um what did we all think of the film then i liked some of it and i didn't like some of it I, it's I, a very mixed film. I don't think having a combination of um, found footage, handheld camera, and normal kind of you know standard filming works. I don't think I don't think mixing them up works at all. No, I, I think it, I think it should have gone with one or the other. Yeah, I I totally agree because um. It's almost like he wants to have his cake and eat it. He wants mm. to have those moments where cameras talk directly to character because it's an easy way of getting their um, their emotions and their motivations out to the audience. So that that's nice, easy to achieve. But at the same time, he wants to be able to show the fights uh, and the shootouts 
in as kind of like stylized a way as possible. Uh, and I totally agree. You, you do one or the other because fan footage, or, you know, I've moaned about fan footage enough on this podcast, but it has its selling points and it has its pluses. Um, but it loses that unique selling point of being ultra real and bring us into characters' worlds if you then kind of like just forget it for half the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also means that the, that the kind of standard narrative suffers from crowbarring pretty poor reasons for the fan footage recording into it. The fact that he's he's had to do a supplementary course at his law degree, so he's taking filmmaking just seemed... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That just seemed... And like when the gangs are filming stuff on their mobile yeah. phones, if you were, like, if, if you, yeah, but who's putting that into this? Mm, yeah, I didn't get and, how it yeah, was being if, made into a film. If you were a gang, surely you wouldn't be filming all your illegal activities because it's evidence. <laughs> yeah. If you get caught wielding guns around, <laughs> going, "We're going to shoot these fucking cops," then you know, if you don't get shot yourself, and then they find yeah. this tape, it's pretty damning evidence. So yeah, I don't, and I didn't, I un- and I didn't understand what was it the CIA or the FBI that there was two bits of footage from them with sort of night vision that was was put into the film. Oh, and yeah, I just thought, that was um, and, that was CIA. Yeah, and it think, was yeah. it was important to the plot, obviously, so you knew what was happening. But it was just like, well, how's that got into this final piece? Is this meant to be a found footage film where somebody's put together all the bits about these two policemen? And their life and their career and in and, and this particular incident to make some kind of film or documentary or whatever, or is it, you know, in which case some of the bits going into the film don't work at all and make no sense, or is it meant to be, or is it meant to be just like a, a standard film, nothing to do with a found footage thing? In which case, why have you done it found footage from the start? Yeah, it's it's weird, and I think. Um... Yeah, they could have actually done, I think they, if they thought about it, they could have done a pretty good found footage film from this. Mm-hmm. Like you say, they would have had to have sacrificed the, um, sacrificed the bits where we're spending time with the gangs. But at the same time, I don't think that would be a major loss because they were pretty one dimensional mm-hmm. in this anyway. That's another, that was another poor point of the film I thought was that the villains in this, we didn't understand really anything about their motivations. They had, there was no real charisma. There was that big evil guy who I recognised from the trailer, and that's about the one thing he said in the entire film. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought the villains were poor. Uh, it's the third time I've seen two cops trapped in an apartment block mm. um, <laughs> under siege this year in a film. Uh, and whereas in the first two times that happened in The Raid and Dread, there was a charismatic, a charismatic and interesting villain at the heart of that. Here it was just like that, it was just some street punks. But, well you never um, really got to see the villain. You got you, you no. only got to see the henchman in effect. You know yeah. you find out why from these CIA bits of footage, why they're trying to to off Jake Gyllenhaal and, and Michael yeah. Penner's characters. You find that out, but you don't really ever get to see or interact with the big boss. You only get to, to deal with the henchman in any kind of detail. And and Which is realistic. Which mm. is, you know, because that is, that was who they would kind of encounter. But, but sometimes, are you going to do a realistic yeah. film or are you going to do a cop action yeah, film? Yeah, and sometimes realistic just doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. I mean, I, he doesn't seem to have any faith in his own mm. sort of, um, you know, filming technique. The way it just switches, I think, just shows that actually he's just putting bits into the film 
like mm. the stuff with the, the rival gang to just, you know, had it out a little bit. I think it's actually yeah. a film you could just skip the first 40 minutes of, just go straight into it after 40 minutes and be completely up to speed with what's happening. I, mean, I, I don't think, think there's yeah. an awful lot that happens at the beginning which gives you any, any no. you know, valuable detail about the, the relationship well, I, between the two no, guys. It, it, gang. Although it, the first 40 minutes is my favourite bit of the film. I'll be honest. Like, yes, when, I like when, it. When, it, when it felt more like a documentary. Mm. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think it actually added anything to the film. You, there's, no, there's no, because that of the direction they went. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the problems I found with it with is it's essentially a buddy cop film, and whether you go down like a a training day route where it's two cops, whether you go down a more bad boys or lethal weapon or hot fuzz or whatever kind of route of a buddy cop film, the the most important thing is the two the two cops. And and if they've got to be likable and have sort of a decent exchange of of banter, for lack of a better word. And this yeah. film, I just didn't like either of them. They weren't horrible uh, people. No, I, I didn't think they were horrible or nasty. I just didn't like them. I just thought I just don't. I just thought there's no real reason for me to really want to care about what happens to these people. They're not. They're not charming. They're not overly nice. They're not you know witty or they're not. And maybe it's because they were trying to do a more gritty or realistic cop film. I just didn't like either of the main characters, which made me just think, well, why do I really care what happens to them in the end? I, I actually did like them. I'll be honest, some of my favourite bits of the film were just those two talking in, in a squad car. Um, but, but I, I thought, I, then I've got it written down here as one of my good points. Uh, I did actually really like uh, Jill and Lauren Penner's performance. And I like their chemistry together. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do think that's why they have in the family stuff, though, Steve, to give you a reason yeah. to kind of root for them. Because, uh, um, yeah, no, you're right. They're not, they're not outright funny. Um, and they're not outright amazing people. They're, they're still being quite Police normal them. people. Yeah, but I thought they had yeah. some, yeah, I thought they had some funny lines. Um, and and there was a I I genuinely thought there was some there was some good uh, chemistry there. I also do think that you know talking about there was some really good handheld shooting. Uh, that some of it was shot really well, which like Owen says, is a real shame that uh, Ayers seems to have had no confidence in his shooting style to flip between one thing and another. Because some bits of the film were shot really well, and, and I do I did really like the kind of the day in the lifestyle build up in the first mm. five minutes, I thought this is doing something a bit different to the I, usual cop I just, film. I just think they could have. It's like, oh, now we're going to do the usual cop film. Exactly. That was the really disappointing bit. It was, a, it, it was essentially a really cliched story, but they were doing it in a very uncliched fashion mm. to start with. And that's why that was what I really liked about it. It's just a shame, yeah, that it just decided in the end, um, well, no, we just could actually fill out the last bit with the proper cop film that you're used to. I mean, I, I think they could have... Got, I mean, some of the action scenes were done quite well, but I just think you should have gambled and done the whole thing as a, a found footage or handheld camera thing. I mean, a lot... I know, I know just from watching occasionally, like, rubbish police camera programmes, a lot of cop yeah. cars now have cameras fitted into them to film what's going Especially on. Especially in America, they have yeah. years, and... and... And again, um, when we've had this debate about found footage, that to me actually is legitimate found footage because it is 
you, you're right, that is footage I could imagine mm. being filmed most of the time. And those little lapel cameras, they could have given, they could have come up with a reason for them mm. to be wearing them. Or, or, uh, the, or you could have, yeah, you could have had, legitimate. you could have had these two policemen being followed and having a documentary made on them. So everything that yeah. happens is being filmed for a documentary that has been given the go-ahead by the LAPD. And yeah. some at some and points they've got have, a, some points yeah, they've got a camera interviews. yeah some points they've got a camera crew with them and other points like the final piece that they wouldn't they just have the ones clipped onto them and yeah. and you know there's ways that you could have got around that not having the the bad guys having anything filmed you could have had them visit them more for crimes they committed you could have you know you could have had them say arrest one and then through some technicality yeah. like happens he gets off. So you know that he's been arrested, but he gets back out. And then they they explained it with with the the guy that they the, that Michael Penner's character fights with in in one part of the film. Yeah. He explains to them that there's a, there's a price on their head. You know that's you know a couple more scenes like that with with yeah. with a cap with a kind of handheld camera. It were it, it it takes out the need for a sort of needless FBI CIA footage shoehorned in. Doesn't really work. Yeah. You, you could lose all the stuff of um, the, the gangs because they don't do anything with it in the film anyway. Can you remember a single? Can you remember any of their names? Come can on. you remember any of their kind of motivations? No, because they were such one-dimensional characters. And at one point, a girl kissed another girl. That's that's what I know about two of the bad girls because they kissed each other. Yeah, it was it, that was actually really horribly cliche uh, and one-dimensional. And, and we, we know nothing of them. So, yeah, you could have easily dropped them and done it all in found footage. You wouldn't have needed to know what the gangs were up to because the, the film as it stands didn't bother with that. So you wouldn't have lost it. Oh, and what seems quite stupid to me was that even the bits that weren't done with handheld camera or found footage style filming seemed to try and imitate that. Yeah. And, mm. and so it just makes you think even more, why not? the whole film that way exactly there was like some shots in the very opening right near the opening where they're having a briefing where the captain comes in mm. um and he's got his camera on the table uh and they've got the lapel cameras so why is it cutting we could have got all of that scene from mm. their cameras mm. there's no reason for the other bit so yeah you're exactly right it feels it just feels confused can I give a sort of an example of a point in the film where I thought the same footage worked really well? Yeah, of course you can. There's, there's, <laughs> thank you, thank you. there's a lot of violence in this film. There's a lot mm-hmm. of violent scenes. We talked about it in Drive, and I think some of the scenes here are just just as bad as that, really. When they yeah. open the cupboard and they find the things that are in the cupboard, yeah, say, yeah, that worked really well. I thought, yeah. In a lot of other films, they probably would have cut away, you wouldn't have seen it, it would have just been sort of hinted at. In this, because it's on a film footage, you see what the characters see, therefore you get a full shot of what's going on. And it worked really well later on when the um, the other cops get attacked. And yeah. I think, again, it works really well with yeah. a film footage camera, it's just pinned to them, whatever the character's looking at, yeah. you see. And I think that's yeah. the point where it did work. Mm, I mean... Um, yeah. The action films like that, like you said, when there are two cops are attacked and they find them, or when they run into the house that's on fire, both mm-hmm. look really good and work really well, but yeah. it's just sort of, the, the film seems confused. It does. 
But yeah. I think a lot of times where other films would have been suggestive because of this fake footage thing, it, it works in its favour. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's definitely some... It does use some... Bit, that's the frustrating thing about the film, is there's definitely promise here. It's a really good idea of a concept, and I think at the heart of it, also Anna Kendrick's is good. There's some good supporting characters in it. Um, so I, I liked it, but there were, I, I don't get the hype it's getting. I don't get the William Friedkin apparently, and you know he should know about cop films having been directed to French Connection. But he said this is the best police film he's ever seen, and and I can't I can't agree with that. Um, I think it's because it, it makes it's them, good. It's solid. It makes them still seem like cops, though, doesn't it? Which is quite it does, good. Yeah. It doesn't turn them into super detectives who are still wearing a police uniform no. or anything like that. They yeah. are just cops. Who I happen to be. imagine officers will love this film. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine that. It it really does kind of glorify the police. Um, mm-hmm. That's the other thing that did actually really annoy me was um, at one point one of their officers who's been in the job for a while does this massive long speech about how the department is eventually going to fuck them in the ass. He says LAPD are going to fuck you in the ass. Um, it's a really big long speech. Uh, but then after that, they, they get medals. Um at no point is it suggested that the department will ever, like, not look after them. And that felt really weird, because I kept thinking, right, OK, at some point, someone's going to hang them out to dry. And and uh, it felt like at no point that, that felt was meant to feel really foreboding, I thought, and then nothing came of that. And there was a few small plot lines which seemed to suggest something, and then nothing came of them. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I still... I still enjoyed it. I'm, I'm still glad I saw it. I just don't think it's incredible. I don't think yeah. it's brilliant. I think it's a pretty good film. It was. It yeah. was definitely watchable. It was. It was enjoyable in parts. Um, the only bit that annoyed me was the, the what seemed well, uh, an OAP woman in the cinema just insisted on talking all the way through it, but she was <laughs> just. Um, but she did fall over on the way in, so it made up for it for laughing at her. <laughs> <laughs> I bet she loved all the hip-hop and everything as well. Yeah, I couldn't really understand why she'd have picked to, to see that film with all the, the hip-hop, gangster rap and swearing. But, yeah. you know, there we go. Whatever floats your boat. Is Jerry still about? Are you still about, Jerry? I am indeed. You are indeed, because you haven't seen this, have you? Nope. What would it take to, to sort of convince you to watch it then? Have you you've seen the trailer? Obviously? I have, yeah. Um, I don't know. I like most of the male leads. I like Anna Kendrick. How much? How much does she get used in this? Um, not a huge amount, but she's very good in it. I think she's actually a fantastic actress. I think you know mm. the fact that she was in the Twilight films kind of covered that up a bit. Do you know what I mean? She, she's yeah. not quite taken seriously. Yeah, she- She's, she's very good in this, but she's in a bit of a cliched role. She does very good with what she's got. Mm, she's not got. Yeah. A, she's not got a massive part either. I mean, no one in the film's really got a big part other than the two cops. Yeah. So, Jill Long Penner. Yeah. yeah. So, go on. If, if you had to sell me this film, if you had to try and convince me to to go and watch it, or conversely, if you thought that I shouldn't watch it, what would you say quickly? Well, I think that you should watch it if you like cop films. I think it's very interesting, particularly the first part, it's a very interesting take on a rather cliché uh, genre. Um, so if you do like cop, fully cop movies, uh, 
then it's worth a watch. If you're not that keen on them anyway, it won't convince you any other way. And if you don't like same footage films, then don't go into it expecting to be converted to, to liking same footage either. That's what I would say, though. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, and I'd say if, if you, as you say, you're a fan of Gyllenhaal and Penner, it's mm. worth watching it because they are, they're both very good at it. They basically make the film, don't they? If yeah. it was, you know, if it was yeah. any other two people, I'm not sure how well the relationship would have worked. You can tell all the work they did on it as well, because apparently they both spent five months going on 12-hour um, drive-bys with police officers. Um, <laughs> and on his first day of doing research, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal someone get, saw someone get murdered while he was tagging along with police officers. So... He's put a lot of effort in, so I think he deserves he deserves you to go and see it for that reason. <laughs> okay, so that's all for this week's podcast. Other than the fact that did anyone see the Die Hard Five trailer before this film? No, I didn't know. Die Mother Russia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Die Hard Five yeah, coming. Yeah, so it's going to be bad, isn't it? I'm, I don't want yeah. it to be. But... It, it, it looks it looks bad. Um, but it's still got John McClane jumping out of stuff and shooting people, so... Clearly we're still going to watch it. It's still going to be oh, a way yeah. the week it comes out, but I'm, I'm, I'm worried. Um, website... Uh, no, sorry, what's up next week? Uh, next week is um, our first ever inductee into the Fail Critics Hall of Fame. Uh, so it's going to be a surprise inductee on the day, because we haven't chosen who is yet. Yeah, but, surprise to us yes. at the moment. No, no, yeah. Don't give it away. <laughs> we know exactly what we're doing. Let's peek behind the curtain. <laughs> so no, no uh, new release next week. No, no. no. So it's uh, going to be what we've been watching, uh, and then we are going to induct our first ever person into our hall of fame and talk about their life's work. Okay. Uh, the website is where it's failcritic.com. We've got some good articles coming up this week. Um, We've got Decade and Film 1981 coming up this week. We've got a couple of film reviews coming out. Um, yeah, no, there'll, there'll be some interesting stuff on there this week. And where's Twitter? Twitter is at Failed Critics, and Facebook is facebook.com slash Failed Critics. There we go. So thanks for listening. Thanks for everybody's contributions, including Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com for the music. Thank you.